0: Welcome to the other half of Church Podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. So we've come now to the, the fourth element of healthy soil um, for our faith to grow It together in community. And that fourth element is you call healthy correction and so we've got the first one being joy the second one being hesed or attachment a secure love and then the third one is a strong group identity how does healthy correction um
1: make our soil healthy well that's really a um Sort of a best way to think of it in the garden is weeds. How, do, hmm. how does pulling the weeds out of your garden make your soil healthy? And it basically keeps you from draining off nutrition into the wrong direction. Uh, and, uh, you know, growing a great big, huge weed in your garden is, uh, I mean, it's growth, right? But it's not what you wanted to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, The problem with uh, human identity is that it's mixed with elements that God didn't mean to have there and the new identity God is trying to uh, develop. So, for instance, the element of, uh, let's say, pride. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a certain kind of pride, as we understand it in English, that is, I mean, just I'm pleased to be who I am. That's Mm -hmm. a a good thing. But then there's a kind of pride that says that who I am is better than anybody else. And so now let's suppose we add joy to that, start watering it with joy say, you know, well, you are better than anyone else. I am so glad to be with you because you're just better than anybody else around here.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Are we growing the character of Christ or are we growing ourselves a weed here? Mm-hmm. sounds kind of weedy to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If we say we're going to attach to that, say I will serve for the rest of my life. I'm going to just be your servant because, you know, you're better than anybody else. And so if I connect to you and I, you know, I'll be part of somebody who's better than anyone else. And if we make that our group identity, you know, we're just better than everybody else. God picked us because we're special. And, uh, you know, we're more loved than, uh, the rest of you, and more, more worthwhile, and uh, you know, if uh, if you've got to perish, well, too bad, you know. But uh, the good ones, uh, you know, that's us. Go on. Uh, does that sound again like uh, what God wanted to uh, create in the character of Christ, or does that sound weedy? And to me, it's it sounds pretty much like a weed. So, any characteristic that we take. Um uh, my brother, for instance, who qualified to, uh, join Mensa, and mm-hmm. he went there and he said, you know, I just don't like being with this, those people. <laughs> the group that he went to was, uh-huh. you know, better than anyone else because they were smarter than anyone else. Not saying that all of them are that way, but the group that he happened to attend was, uh, he found obnoxious. And one of my sons was, had a, well, it's my grandson, actually, uh, pretty good at soccer. And so he got invited to play in an elite club. uh, Only he found that everybody there thought they were better than the average person. And uh, as far as he was concerned, it was no fun to be part of that group as a group. uh, You know, they didn't cohere, you know, they didn't have that cohesiveness because every one of them wanted to be the best player in the world. So yeah, uh, all of our strengths can turn into weeds uh, if we start building the first three ingredients and using those to grow something that God didn't intend. So we have to somehow figure out this process of correction. In many ways, the spiritual disciplines are corrections. You know, they, we, uh, we fast, we pray uh, in solitude and things like that to to realize that some of the things that are taking over our life weren't meant to be there. And we have to pull those things. Uh, Paul describes it as, is, um, the old man or the old self has to die, has to be removed. And the problem with culture is that it never tells us exactly which is the, the good and the bad part. You know, what's popular in culture, uh, for instance, right now in in most American culture, being able to insult somebody and put them down and and uh, is very popular. That gives you mm-hmm. social power. You know the mm-hmm. cl- the social media crawls with uh, people. You know letting each other have it. And mm-hmm. you know junior high uh, is that kind of way. But is that the character of Christ? Right. You know, is that you know, well, how do we correct that? Why do we tell, how do we tell someone? Culture says this, uh, but we're not that kind of people. And then, um, because the right orbital prefrontal cortex, where your group identity grows, it's your individual identity up until 12, 13, then it's your group identity growing there, taking over, uh, says, here's how we act. And so everybody else in my group is doing that. Now, you said you're a youth pastor. I was, yes. Yeah. Did you see any tendency for the youth to do whatever everyone else was doing? And (laughs) does that be a justification? All the time. All right. That's what the brain is trying to do. This is what my people do. It's okay if they do it. Yeah. But did you ever have a need to correct any of that? Did did it all seem just fine to you or were there any weeds? There was a lot of weeds for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. And
0: what what we ended up having to do was to actually write rules of our community, put them on the wall and say, here's what it means to be a part of this group. If you're in this group, you're not going to belittle other people with your words. Just like that Mm -hmm. tendency you were just talking about of naming and nicknames and putting people down is so common. We had to make it explicitly clear that's not what our group does.
1: Exactly. It wasn't your group identity. We are not people who do this. Your rules are very close to what I would call group identity statements. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael said, if you went back to uh, designing a discipleship program, instead of having a list of belief statements, he would have something similar to what you had as rules here. We're the kind of people who do this. We're not the kind Mm -hmm. of people who do that. Now, if we have enough attachment to someone, we mm-hmm. have the right to uh, to tell them about that. So you know, mm-hmm. I'm still going to love you. We're still going to be people, but what you're doing here isn't a source of joy. It's not how we are as people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so now, what your brain is looking for is, oh, that's all very good, but what do my people do? Mm-hmm. Give me an example. Uh, And have you also noticed that uh, people who are hypocritical seem to really annoy the uh, young adults? Mm Mm-hmm. So you're saying something, that's your left hemisphere telling you how you're supposed to do it. If you didn't follow the rules that you put for the group, would they uh, be likely to tell you? Yes, they would. They frequently did. Mm Mm-hmm. Because this the group identity wants a coherent example. Okay, you tell us that's fine, but now you show us. Mm. These things have to fit together. Tell us how you can solve real-life problems, like if we're not getting along, by acting like my people do. And that's what adolescents have to solve. And uh, that is why you have to pull the weeds, so we can say, not like this, let me give you a better way. Right. And something that
0: um, Michael mentioned in the book that surprised me, and it sounded like it surprised him that you had said, and I just want to get it straight from you and make sure that it's what you meant, that people don't change without shame.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, there's an unpopular thought, but yes, it's true.
0: How does shame... Work in the brain? Is there is there a part of the brain that processes shame and is there good shame and bad shame? And how do we know the
2: difference?
1: Right, that's a very important thing. Now, there are, uh, we talked about joy and the joy is actually hardwired into your brain. Your jo- brain wants to look for joy. So we got that down. That's a positive thing. <clears throat> there are also six uh, unpleasant emotions programmed into the brain that are basically there to tell your brain, oops, don't do that. Hmm. So uh to give you an example, I have a uh um guy grand nephew who doesn't have any pain sensors. Hmm. So uh he'll find a piece of glass, uh play with it, cut himself and keep cutting himself because he feels no pain. Huh. And he doesn't learn from his experience because it didn't hurt. So, you know, just red stuff running around, you know, that doesn't bother him. Um, Yeah. And so there's no learning from that. Uh, One of the reasons why people with leprosy lose their fingers and toes and uh, other parts of their body is that leprosy knocks out their pain sensors. So they don't actually feel when they're injuring their toes and it isn't Mm -hmm. that the leprosy uh, makes you lose your toes. It's because you have no pain sensors. You end up injuring them in ways that your body can't recover from. So your brain is basically programmed to where if it doesn't hurt in some way, there's nothing wrong with it. I have no incentive in the brain to change it.
0: Hmm.
1: So we have to, uh In fact, one of the studies that was done was they suppressed the pain center in the brain with, with chemicals, little okay. anesthesia, put it to sleep, and they found that people did not change any behavior. You couldn't teach people to change if they couldn't feel pain. They could see the problem. They could understand the problem. They just had no incentive whatsoever to make a change. So there must yeah. be something about it you don't like or your brain won't make a change it won't adjust that's just neurology mm-hmm. so uh what is you know we got now six kinds of pain plus physical pain but the six emotional pains which are shame uh, disgust uh, hopeless despair sadness anger um, and fear, fear. <clears throat> yeah yeah they tell us something is wrong so that looks like a rattlesnake there. You should be afraid of that. Change the direction that you're walking. Uh, You know, and we think of that as useful, um, you know, and sadness tells us that we're losing something of value to us. Well, shame is the part of our brain that says we're losing joy here. So instead of being someone that brings you joy. So when you see me, you go, "Whoa, right. If I come in, um, doing something like picking my nose, let's say, just pick something disgusting. People just don't look at you and go, oh, good. Let me watch you. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, the reaction is different, right? Yeah. And it works very quickly. Our brain goes, Ooh, that didn't bring joy. I better stop. Yeah. So it's that mechanism we have to activate. Now, the problem here is uh, that, as soon as you get the signal, I didn't bring you joy. Your brain is now looking for the answer. So how do I get you joy, get joy? How? What's the way back from here? What's the correction? And so we've got toxic shame if I just tell you, hey, you're not bringing me joy. Mm-hmm. But I don't give you any way to say, ah, but if we did it this way, you know, here, take this tissue. And now we're very glad to be together again. So... Mm-hmm. Um, As soon as you add the, we don't do it that way, we do it this way, now you've got a very healthy kind of shame message provided. All of that happens in less than 90 seconds. Yeah. So it seems like
0: shame can become toxic if it stays
1: as shame and doesn't return to joy. Yes. If you take more than 90 seconds or you don't provide an answer, which most Hmm. of the time, you know, if you just tell them, Hey, you know, you're a bad kid. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now that goes into my identity. Is there a way out of being a bad kid? Uh, no, within 90 seconds, not going to change. That begins to be very corrosive. It's one of them. If joy is the most important thing for building identity, then any kind of shame that, last more than 90 seconds without giving a, a road back to your correct identity is going to be equally corrosive and destructive to your identity. So,
0: hmm.
1: How does uh, shame relate then to condemnation? Well, um, yeah, condemnation is something that is only helpful in the hands of God. So no no human being uh, can handle that one correctly. And God, as our designer, can say to us, you know, what you're doing, um, I condemn as not being fit for human beings to do. That's, you know, it's just not within your design uh, to do. And so every time you do that, you're going to destroy who I meant you to be. And so God can do that because he immediately goes back and says, now, um, and I love you, and here's who I mean you to be. So all you have to do is repent. Say, well, I guess you're right. That isn't who I'm meant to be. Uh, Show me the right way. Condemnation from God um, always leads to repentance or makes the way to repentance, which means we can rediscover who we are. Now, condemnation from the devil comes across as, as accusations. It says the real you is that rotten one. Hmm. And uh, that's why Paul tells Titus, teach the older women not to be devils, uh, not to be accusers, not to be telling everybody, you know, the rotten things you do is the real you. No, the rotten things we do is the weed we have to pull. In our garden, we're growing a better copy of you. And so we have to get to that point right away. Condemnation is usually also conscious. Conscious. Level mm-hmm. slow track stuff, and and almost all shame in the slow track is is poisonous. Mm. It comes from being told, you know, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a a healthy shame message says, you've forgotten who you really are. Mm. So let me help you discover who who God delights uh, to create you into being maybe you didn't forget, maybe like in the case of many of us, we were never told, we were never shown. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, well, maybe you never learned who who to be, Paul says. You know, in the former times, some of you were thieves and all kinds of stuff like that, but let me tell you who you really are. You're meant to work with your hands to have something good to give to everybody. So, you're the kind of people who are good for the world. Everybody is better off for having you around. Uh, you know, you thought you were a thief all this time uh, Well, you're you're entirely wrong. <laughs> let's pull that weed. Let's plant the seed. In
0: this episode, Jim Wilder explained how healthy correction is key to healthy soil. Healthy correction is like pulling weeds. Shame, which he describes as relational pain, must provide a quick return to joy or it will become toxic. Toxic. In the next section, I'm going to discuss with Michael Hendricks how the church can create a community where correction is healthy and normal. Michael, thank you for for joining us on this episode of the Other Half of Church podcast. Uh, I spoke with Jim Wilder about how healthy correction is the fourth element of healthy soil. And we talked a little bit about how when I was a youth pastor, um, I was having some challenges with behavior and how students were kind of changing the the culture and atmosphere to a place where it was okay to tear each other down with their words. And I was getting frustrated with this, and so I printed out like rules of being a part of the treehouse, which is what we called our youth group. Right, and so. He was saying how that kind of dovetailed in with what he's talking about, how we, we create rules around our communities and we process this correction in a healthy way. If We are a people who do something and who do not do something. How do you see healthy correction in the church?
2: Well, first of all, healthy correction is very much a, a we statement. That's probably one of the biggest changes from what I've experienced we we often think of correction and we think someone looking at you and saying you shouldn't do that why did you do that that's bad of some some sort of that form and uh and when you do that actually the brain the area of the brain that that uh kind of drives and is the executive or changing our character especially around areas where we're not acting like um like children of god where we forget who we really are that area of our brain doesn't get awakened uh, when it's you and me talking and you saying you're, you did that wrong. I don't like that. You did that. Don't do that anymore. Those kinds of statements. We do that as parents with our kids as well. Um, but they don't awaken uh, the area, which is very much an area that responds to what kind of people are we? Hmm. So really correction, uh, you know, healthy correction is a reminder. It's very much more of a reminder rather than me rebuking you. It's, you know, it's kind of the, The basic form is some form of we don't do this. Instead, we're a people. The kind of people we are, we do this instead.
0: Now, how do you practically apply that in a church? Do you create, like, is it a small group function where that sort of healthy correction can happen? Or, like, as a pastor, do you kind of, like, wander around the church looking for things people are doing wrong? And then say, (laughs) you know what, we are a people who don't take the last bit of coffee without asking everybody else if they would like some.
2: Yeah, (laughs) that's a good question. Because most of us, when we think of correction, we kind of, I even kind of have this guarded feeling where I don't, I don't want to go into a place where people just are going to be correcting me all the time. Right.
0: And and I don't want to be that person either. That's like the narc that's running around being like, I'm correcting everybody. And so where, where does that practically take place?
2: Well the best the best way to learn is by an example, and the best examples we see is Jesus, and Jesus is constantly correcting his disciples, but he does it in a way which is so winsome and and fluid. And uh, you know one, one of the examples that occurs to me was when they're, you know his, his disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And Jesus doesn't say, "Don't do that, you shouldn't be doing that. why are you, you're, that's bad. You guys are bad. Instead, he grabs a child, he puts him in front of him and said, this is the way our kingdom works. Whoever humbles themselves like this child will be the greatest in my Mm -hmm. kingdom. And those, uh, you know, who exalt themselves, we see in other scriptures that said, they're the ones that will be humbled. So it's almost like Jesus saying, "That's that's not who we are. You know, who is the greatest is not a question anyone in the kingdom of God would ask. It wouldn't even occur to us to ask that question. And so Jesus is basically saying, you all, if you're forgetting what kingdom you're in, who you are, what people you are, and that even feels better in my body when someone says that, when it's a reminder, remember, you know, I'm, you know, if you, if you said to me, you're a bad person, you shouldn't do that. That's one, one reaction in my body. But if you come to me and say, you know, Michael, I think back there, you might've forgotten who you were.
0: Hmm.
2: That's a very different conversation. And it's very, very different feeling too, because it's almost like, you know, who I really am and you're calling me back into my true identity. And uh, and that's really you know this isn't going to happen to in a church until we get really good training and we get like a culture of that correction. Correction also needs good soil. You need to have the other soil ingredients. You need to be joy. You have joy and and have a hesed attachment to each other, and you need to have a well-formed group identity. Otherwise, correction doesn't work too. That's another reason correction doesn't work is we don't have the the three precursors to making correction work. Hmm. And so we don't really have an attachment with the person, and we've never built up the group identity around you know we don't take the last bit of coffee we've never had we don't had any you know there's very general uh, group identity statements around that where we're constantly looking for the benefit of others etc and so then yeah. we lay it you know we just lob a correction at someone but they don't have any of the precursors and it just doesn't work
0: how long did that take um in your experience to develop those first three so that you could get to the
2: fourth well in our, the first time I ever tried it, it was in a small group that we met for 15 weeks. There's about 20, 25 people. And we would just, every single day, we would go through exercises, or every single week rather, about um, you know what's our group identity statement for the week? Who are we? What's what's an example of a correction? So we'd actually come up with hypothetical situations and then split people into groups and say, okay, come up with a, a healthy correction statement when someone does that. Mm. And so there needs to be that kind of practice, but there also needs to be um, examples. In other words, we need to have more mature men, more mature women around us in our community that we see regularly and we see them do it. Mm -hmm. And we also see them accept it. Like when they forget who they are and someone corrects them, you know, you need to train yourself how to accept correction as well. But a lot of that training is seeing a more mature person do it.
0: It reminds me of, I forget where I'd heard about this, but the you probably know better than I do, the, the concept of mirror neutrons right. in the brain where like watching something, your brain is actually performing it along with it. Mm-hmm. So is, is that tied in somehow? Like when you're able to see somebody handle a stressful situation with maturity and staying like themselves, that it's almost like a, a brain workout that you can follow.
2: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we change more through imitation than we do reading rules or lists or, you know, a good book on the topic of not of not doing this or not doing that. You know, this is very mm-hmm. applicable to, to addictions, you know, to see another man or another woman handle a situation that would cause you to fall into temptation that you probably couldn't recover from. Mm-hmm. Just seeing them do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: seeing them handle it in a way that's fully saturated with Jesus and they're connected and they stay themselves and they stay connected to you. Um, he, that person has just giving you your brain, a good workout.
0: Hmm. And so when you are trying to implement this into a church setting, what type of strategy of, it sounds like you need to get some kind of group together to practice these things so you can, um, build off of each other. Who do you look for? Is it, um, like, do you start with, like the, the staff of the church and go through that together and then that trickles down from there? Or do you try and gather people from all different walks and maturity levels and work on it together?
2: Well, the ideal would be, and when I work with churches, I, I do this. I, I prefer to work with the staff and the, and the biggest influencer influencers and connected people mm-hmm. so that then they can take it and bring it to the rest of the church. You know, like mm-hmm. if I'm consulting with the church, um, that's not always possible. Sometimes the least um, curious and open people to this kind of work are the leadership, because they, you know, sometimes they have an, an image to protect. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to keep themselves as the expert, etc. And, and as long as you do that, you're you're in a place where you're not probably not going to go in the direction that's going to really bring a lot of change in your life. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of churches as well that that are, that have leaders that are just hungry and they're saying, I, we don't, you know, I'm working with the church right now where they said, we, we do not know how, where to start. And we really want to work on this. And so I'm working with, you know, the, the seven or eight big leaders of the church first for four months before they do any kind of program with any small groups or anything in the rest of the church. I'm just working with them weekly for four months. Mm -hmm. And, and this is the type of work we're going to be doing. What type of results have you seen from that? Well, right now I'm just getting it started in churches because it's a kind of a tough sell these days because, you know, if you read my book, the first couple chapters, I I are dedicated essentially to the fact that the church has largely forgotten that the central task is this kind of character transformation that that requires Mm -hmm. good, healthy, relational soil. And we've slowly thought about a vision of the church that's different than this. And so a lot of times when we talk to people about this, it's just out of left field. And so they're just yeah. not ready to receive it. They maybe need to hear it a few times. Although I am seeing more and more curiosity among mm-hmm. leadership and wanting to know more. And, and, and so in that sense, I'm encouraged because I'm seeing some churches that are truly hungry for this kind of change.
0: What do you think is the biggest fear that a pastor, maybe they're listening to this right now, the biggest fear that they would have of going on this process?
2: Well, I think by far the biggest one is that I'm not good enough. I'll be exposed. My weaknesses Mm -hmm. will be exposed. Um, I'll be corrected. And it'll look like I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be this religious expert up in front of everybody with this nice shiny microphone in my hand. And so I better maintain that image and it'll all come collapsing down. Of course, none of those things are true. As a matter of fact, living in our weakness and sharing our weakness openly is one of the key factors for a healthy church. That's one of the, one of the attachment builder things. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, when uh, the leaders are really open about their own weaknesses, there's actually a surprisingly surprising sense of liberation and open and relaxation where you're not having to manage image anymore.
0: Mm. One of the things I talked about with, Jim, and I just wanted to send it your way as well to get your take on it, is in the in the book, The Other Half of Church, you guys talk about shame yes. and this, uh, what seems like a pretty radical concept of healthy shame. Yeah. And it seemed like there was a little bit of a debate that happened on whether shame was a redeemable word. Right. If it's, it's something that is so closely associated with toxicity and negativity and just so many awful things that have happened in people's lives that it's hard to hear that word and think it could be something that's healthy.
2: Right. And a lot of that resistance to accept that word or, or, or uh, wanting to reject it altogether is actually healthy and for good reasons because most, you know, if you read our book, we'll, we uh, really divide shame into healthy shame and toxic shame. And mm-hmm. Most of the shame, most of us growing up, Maybe even in churches, maybe in our families, maybe in schools, maybe from coaches, maybe from teachers. Most of the shame we experienced was toxic shame. Mm-hmm. And Toxic shame is some, some version of the statement that you are bad, hmm. but it's you are bad, period. It just kind of tells you what you did wrong and leaves you there and expects you to figure it out. Hmm. Um, like I said earlier, healthy shame is, ooh, you've forgotten who you are. Let me remind you who, what kind of people we are. So I put mm-hmm. "we" in it too. Like I need to remind myself, even as I'm reminding you, Jeremy, if you did something, I'm I'm reminding us because I forget too. It's very much mm-hmm. a us family. Let's let's not forget who we are as children of God. Let's not forget what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God on Earth mm-hmm. because we're constantly tempted not to. Um, but when when we did a, a, a training with Jim on this, when I first heard these concepts, when and when he started mentioning shame, we all did the same thing you just said. We all pushed back and said, "Well, can't." Can't you, can't you use a different word? Mm-hmm. You know, a word that's not so loaded, like uh, conviction, or, you know, we came up with other words, and and honestly, Jim would have none of it. Jim said, uh. you, you know, <laughs> th- there's six big emotions that are mapped to our brains that we can actually map through brain scans to specific areas in our brains, and shame is one of them. And toxic shame and healthy shame activate the same area, okay? hmm he says, we don't do that with anger. We don't say, well, let's not use anger because there's a good anger and a bad anger. So let's, let's rename the good anger something else. We don't do that or for fear either. Mm-hmm. And so he says, I don't see why we should. Usually, you know, the fact that we're we're wanting to avoid shame shows that we have some neurological work to do, too, to correct connect shame to joy so that we can be relational in shame. Most of us haven't gotten that connection. So you get those in the first 18 months of life about. Mm-hmm. Most of us haven't had that well-connected, that relational connection, neurological connection. I talk about this in the book, but all of those big negative feeling emotions are meant to be connected strongly to joy. I mean, I'm glad to be with you in that emotion with our mother first mm-hmm. and then with our father and then our family and then with, with, our, with God too, where God is glad to be with us, even in our shame.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, once you can make shame relational, all of a sudden it loses a lot of its fear power. Hmm. And uh, Jim even says the goal of this, this practice of correction is get, to get to the point where when, when you come up to me, Jeremy, and said, Michael, I think he, I, I saw something back there that didn't look like you, my instantaneous reaction, and this only comes with lots of reps and lots of practice, but my instantaneous reaction is, oh boy, I'm going to learn about something that's going to let me know Jesus better and, and teach hmm. me how to live in his kingdom better. And that's a really healthy reaction, action to shame. The thing, part of this training, what it has to do too, is it has to deal with toxic shame and make mm. us utterly impermeable to cut toxic shame. So we will we'll even, in my book, I have some exercises where, where we will each go around in the group and, and create a toxic shame message that we've heard against us, some sort of toxic mm. shame. And then we'll have the rest of the group lob that toxic shame at me and I will say, and then I say, there is no condemnation for for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. And so you actually get good at rejecting toxic shame, which is like a form of condemnation. We we reject condemnation, and but we accept healthy shame. And we actually practice both of those. And I think you really need to practice both. I'm
0: wondering, I'm not really sure how to phrase this, but what relation... Do you see between – so you said toxic shame is a statement of you are bad. Yeah. Is there any correlation that you see between that statement and maybe a misunderstanding of original sin and total depravity? Because I've heard that same message from preachers saying you are sinful all the way through. Right. You are – bad and it's not and god saved you in your badness and it's only by his grace that you're saved and those things in one sense are true but it also sounds like could that be a toxic shame message if it's not also balanced with the image of god that's written into the very nature of who we are
2: yeah right i think the best place to go is where it all started when adam and eve ate the fruit, right? Mm-hmm. God didn't walk up to them and said, you two are bad. Get out. Yeah. Instead, he said, where are you? And then they said, well, we're hiding from you. And he goes, because we're naked. And, and his next statement wasn't, you're bad. What did you do? He said, well, who told you you were naked? Mm-hmm. And then after he works it out with the man, he does give them some toxic shame messages. But the next thing he does is he starts clothing them. hmm and clothing, that mainly means, it essentially means I'm not done with you yet. Mm-hmm. This is gonna, This human race is going to go through a different path than it looked like it was going before you ate this fruit. Mm-hmm. And then we see that through the whole rest of the Old Testament, God is not done with us. The whole mm-hmm. Old Testament is saying, okay, let's start this walk back a little, you know, after you hear it over and over again is there's something coming. I have a solution. There's someone coming, mm-hmm. you know, which we see in the fruition with Jesus Christ. So the, the whole Old Testament story is, a, a, is an example of healthy shame where God says, you did this wrong, you you swerved from the path, okay, come back, come back. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who you are. That's a very good um, a, a definition of the word sin, is us forgetting who we really are. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because even in my pastoral work, I, I dealt with this where people had this view of God that looked very close to a a toxic shame message of yeah. God hates me. Every time I do something wrong, God's there to punish me. He's out to get me. And it's like living the, under this fear of a vengeful God. And it just seems like that that message of shame was internalized in a toxic way and it didn't... It wasn't balanced with the healthy
2: correction, right? When you when your first thought of God is that He thinks you are bad, that's evidence that you've established what we call a fear bond with God. Hmm. So we can we can bond this this hesed attachment bond we've been talking about as part of the soak good soil. Um, a lot of that work isn't just creating these attachments in our community, but it's also creating this has said attachment. It's kind of a joy bond. You would say a love bond And many of your people in church already have a bond with God, but it's a fear bond. Hmm. And, uh, and there's a whole process you take people through, which I think needs to be a regular part of the discipleship of a church that converts a fear bond with God into a love bond, you know, and perfect love casts all fear out. You know, that, that, that scripture is basically telling us, You know, without knowing the neuroscience, now we have neuroscience that explains it, is it's convert that that fear bond with God into a love bond. Hmm.
0: You've been listening to The Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit theotherhalfofchurch.com.